and welcome to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And I'm Caelan Hogan. In this special podcast series, we will explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 22nd of October. For the first time, the winner announcement will take place as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Celebrating 25 years this year, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. today's episode, we'll be discussing An American Marriage by Teori Jones, published by Algonquin Books. And this is a novel that is a truly fascinating kind of state of the nation American novel, um, which looks basically at the prison industrial complex, um, subject matter that people might be familiar with if they've seen Netflix documentaries like The 13th. Um, but what Teori Jones is doing is she's looking at uh the marriage of one young upwardly mobile couple and how it is affected when they fall foul of an unjust um, imprisonment in the case of the husband and how that impacts on their lives and how the, the ripples of that kind of spiral outwards and how they as a couple are forced into gender roles in particular by the experience of this unjust imprisonment. Um, without giving too much away, the husband is accused, accused of raping a woman and um, he's sentenced to 12 years in prison. And um, The young couple have only been married a couple of months when this happens. And it's so fascinating to look at how Teori Jones kind of looks at the at the, the edges and the weak spots in the safety net of these communities. You know, um, both of these young people are college educated. As I said, they're upwardly mobile. Their prospects are wonderful. She's an artist. He works in business. And the interesting thing is, though, that their parents even though one of the parent couples are quite wealthy, they're just that little bit closer to this state of precarity, you know. They are close to the history of black America. They are close to the civil rights movement. They are close to the Jim Crow era laws. Their lives have been indelibly marked by these things. This new generation have had the luxury of not having to feel those things so keenly. And yet what happens over the course of the novel drags them back into this space. Um, it's a really fascinating dynamic and also a really absorbing love story. Sounds like a very timely read as well. So I'm going to read a, a short extract. What I know is this. They didn't believe me. Twelve people and not one of them took me at my word. There in front of the room, I explained Roy couldn't have raped the woman in room 206 because we had been together. I told them about the magic fingers that wouldn't work, about the movie that played on the snowy television, the prosecutor asked me what we had been fighting about. Rattled, I looked to Roy and to both our mothers. Banks objected, so I didn't have to answer, but the pause made it appear that I was concealing something rotten at the pit of our very young marriage. Even before I stepped down from the witness stand, I knew that I had failed him. Maybe I wasn't appealing enough, not dramatic enough. 
two not from around here. Who knows? Uncle Banks, coaching me, said, Now is not the time to be articulate. Now is the time to give it up. No filter, all heart. No matter what you're asked, what you want the jury to see is why you married him. I tried, but I didn't know how to be anything other than well-spoken in front of strangers. I wish I could have brought a selection of my art, the man-moving series, all images of Roy, the marble, the dolls, and a few watercolours. I would say, this is who he is to me. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he gentle? But all I had were words, which are as light and flimsy as air. As I took my seat beside Andre, not even the black lady juror would look at me. And it's so fascinating, again, just even to hear that and to think about the notion of communities that are under scrutiny, constantly under scrutiny. And despite the fact that they can live their lives to a certain extent, feeling not under that scrutiny, when something outside of their control happens, they then have to mould themselves into something that will be presentable, that will be without blame. Um, And the notion that this couple had had a fight uh, suddenly becomes something that points towards all of these kind of totally baseless fears around what the black community is. And yet at the same time, Celestial, the woman who's speaking there, who is a, you know, third level educated artist, a successful artist and businesswoman, she doesn't know what's the right way to be, to present herself. She's told different things. And much like I think we were talking about when we talked about Milkman, there's this sense that within the community, you were pushed into these impossible spaces where you can't actually inhabit them in an honest way. And trying to sort of represent yourself in a way that is, you know, that defies those stereotypes. Um, It really comes across in that extract and it reminds me of, I mean, there's a video of one of the many brutal police killings of black men in the States and his girlfriend is in the car with him, I think, and she's still saying sir and, and speaking in such a polite way, even in that horrific moment that, you know, the way that communities have had to learn to speak in order to protect themselves. Um, it really, you know, I'm, I'm really interested now to hear your conversation with Tayari and uh, let's go to that. Let's go to the interview. I just want to say, start by saying thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's so lovely to have you here and to have the chance to talk about this amazing novel, An American Marriage, which has just touched so many people. Um, and I'm so delighted to have been able to come to it through this particular awards shortlisting for the International Dublin Literary Award, um, which is one of my favourite awards because it is voted for by people in public libraries and public libraries all over the world. And I think that's a really meaningful thing, um, both for readers and writers, because rather than it just being a bunch of independent people in a room with a pile of books, it's it's readers who've lived the books and loved of the books. Um, and I think that having become so lost and absorbed in this novel myself, I absolutely understand what it is that the readers saw in it and how it spoke to them. Um, but having read 
already five out of the ten books that are shortlisted um, and starting to read the other five, I've been thinking about the various different themes that have come up throughout these books from all over the world. Um, But there is a kind of a zeitgeist around explorations of violence and identity and race that run through a number of the books from lots of different approaches. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about how you approach these themes in An American Marriage? Well, when I started writing An American Marriage, I was at Harvard University where I had a Radcliffe Institute fellowship um, to research the issue of wrongful convictions. And I learned so much about the way the criminal justice system basically is rigged against the poor people, people of color, specifically black people. And I was, I felt a lot of things. I was outraged, I was furious, I was despairing, but you know, I wasn't inspired because to write a novel, you need to have moral ambiguity. And when I was writing about wrongful conviction, there was no ambiguity. I mean, we call it wrongful conviction because it's wrong. So I didn't have what I needed. I needed to really look at the ways that a wrongful conviction would touch a family. And the family needed to feel like a real family, not like a symbolic family. Not The family didn't need to be a screen on which I could show a movie about wrongful conviction. I really needed to say, how does this touch the lives of individuals? Because that's also when you most feel this idea of state violence, racism, all these things, when you see how it touches everyday, ordinary, flawed people's lives. Mm -hmm. I think it is one of those wonderful truisms that the the story has to carry the theme rather than the theme carrying the stories. And and what you've done here, I think, is is create such an identifiable family unit um, and, and really kind of spooled out the various issues that face them in a really, really touching way. Um, but to talk a little bit more about the, I suppose, what we, we call the industrial prison complex in the in the United States at the moment, I think some of us will be familiar with uh, a little bit about that system through things like the Netflix documentary, The 13th, which brings the kind of foundations of that system all the way back to the Constitution, to this kind of post-slavery moment where, uh, you know, people are granted liberty, except in the cases, and and liberty to earn money for their work, except in the cases where they're incarcerated. Um, So, you know, talk to me a little bit about how deep the roots of this in American society go. I mean, the idea, well, first, you know, the United States incarcerates more of its citizens than any other um, Western country. And the people in prison do so much work. We, We as Americans are not aware of how many things you may own or services you have purchased that are um, performed by prisoners who make nothing. This is a very small example, but the car wash near where my mother, it's a big corporate car wash. You know, you drive this, you drive your car through, there's a machine that washes the car. And afterwards, there are about 25 or so men, all of whom are black, who dry the car, vacuum the car. Those men are prisoners. They are prisoners and they've been contracted out to the car wash and they make pennies an hour. I ha- And this is I have, I have pen pals who are in prison. And the first time I got a letter from a prisoner, I was really like taken aback. How did this person find my address? You know, oh no, no oh no. And my mentor, the poet, um, Nikki Giovanni, Nikki said to me, she said, I said, what should I do? Nikki said, you will write him back because you don't know how hard, how many hours he had to work to buy the stamp, to buy the envelope, to buy the paper. And when you receive letters from prisoners, 
The letters are written from margin to margin. They don't waste an inch of paper because they had to pay for it and they make pennies an hour. I mean, it's like something from a Charles Dickens novel where you have this notion of, of this Victorian notion of, of debtor's prisons where or, or prisons in 19th century uh, England where people had to buy their own manacles. Uh, you know, it, it, it almost gets to that point. Um, well, we do have a version here of what I would call debtor's prisons because we have something called cash bail. So let's say that I have been stopped for a broken taillight on my car and that's illegal because you, ha- you have to drive safely and I'm arrested, and they say, well, you have to post bond of, say, $800 or $1,000, and I don't have that money, I would have to stay in prison or in jail until the until the um, date of my hearing. So there are so many people who are locked up because they don't have the money to get out. There are people who've been in jail like six months for a minor parking violation. And I think one of the the moments in the novel that symbolises this so much for me, and and it's a novel full of wonderful imagery, but there's one image in particular that stuck with me. Um, And for the listeners, it's, you know, our our protagonist, one of our protagonists, Roy, has been uh, unjustly convicted and sent to prison. But there's a moment where he barters something for a pair. And that for me was an intensely human moment, a very tragic moment, but just the notion of... The simplicity of not being able to get a pair, you know? Simply a pair. I was actually motivated to write that part. I did not, in writing this book, I didn't conduct interviews with people in prison because I have kind of ethical feeling. Like, I don't want to be like, hello, I'm on fellowship at Harvard University and I would like to know about your pain for my book. You know, I don't, (laughs) I don't like that idea of, I just, but I read a lot of oral histories of people who were convicted because I feel like if someone participated in an oral history project, they want their voice out there. And there was a, a man who spoke of something similar that he did to, um, to for a lemon. And I chose in his novel to make it a pear. Pear is just so much more shapely and just more, more literary. But this idea fresh any fresh food, a small thing such as a pear or an apple, let alone something as exotic as a grape. It's it's what I call the minutia of deprivation. So in writing a novel, you have to try to find the small details. And also I didn't want, you know, when you read about prison, prison is two things. It is brutality and it is monotony. And those are two things you don't really want to experience vicariously in a novel. So I had to think of what are the things that capture this brutality without dragging the reader through the fire. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think that pair really symbolises that for me. I've never wanted a pair so much afterwards and felt so conflicted about one. But um, I'd love to bring us back to your two wonderful protagonists, Roy and Celestial, who are just two of the most complex and engaging and absorbing characters that I've come across in a long time. Um, and you you mentioned the family very early on in our, in our chat. And I think one of the things that fascinates me about the way that you paint Roy and Celestial's backgrounds is that these are two upwardly mobile young people and yet their families are so close to historically to this kind of sense of precarity um, you know they, they, even Celestial's family who are a little bit more wealthy um, it feels like there's such a thin margin both in terms of the justice system being stacked against them and the weight of history between them and poverty and between them and the history of slavery can you talk to us a little bit about that? 
Yes. I mean, I think about that in my own life. You know, there have been studies that say that most Americans don't know anyone from another class, don't know anyone intimately from another class. But as a Black American, you know, people from another class, well, I call them my cousins. If you think about it, my father was born in the 40s, and which means daddy was born in 37. Mommy was born in 43. And my father grew up in the Jim Crow South under extreme segregation. But just because of how, when he was born, he was able to access the benefits of desegregation when Jim Crow was abolished. He was just the right age, he was in his 20s, to take advantage of all the opportunities. Imagine his brother, who's 10 years older, when the opportunities came about, he was a little bit older, so he couldn't take advantage of the educational opportunities in the same way. But, you know, his children are my first cousins. And so, you know, we're, ve we're very close. It's very close historical memory of, well, for my father, it's not historical memory. He just calls it memory. Daddy, you know, daddy tells me stories about, this is a small thing, but he saw in a catalog, a turtleneck sweater. He had never seen one. And he thought it was the most amazing invention. Like, wow, it's a sweater and it covers your neck. And he wanted one and he was trying to save his pennies, but his mother would have, his mother and father would have various crises and all the children would have to give their savings over. Finally, he saved enough. He ordered the sweater only to discover himself to have a wool allergy. And so on his neck, it caused all this irritation, but he couldn't mail it back because black people were not allowed to return things. And it was the only sweater he had. So he took scissors and cut the, the neck off and wore it raggedy. And he told me this, not to give me a lesson about racism, but to, to warn me against ordering from catalogs. But that's how deep, you know, that's just how deeply buried these experiences are. It's just, I think because I'm a novelist, I tend to look toward the, the small details. But to me, that tells me so much that I need to know about my father's experience. And my father has a PhD. He's a PhD in political science. But he was a little boy who couldn't send back a sweater because of the color of his skin. Mm, yeah. And I think it's a real lesson. And the, the, the novel itself is in a lesson of that, that notion of, of how easy it is to forget recent history or maybe not forget, but to sweep recent history under the carpet and how easy it is for these things to reemerge in, in really negative ways. I mean, absolutely. Roy and Celestial, they they know that wrongful convictions happen, but they think it happens to other people or even in the recent past of 40 or 50 years ago. And so while they aren't naive to think that racism is over, but because they don't face it every day, they feel insulated from it. And I think that in a way is good. How can you live your life if every day you're waiting for the hammer to fall? And had they been waiting for the hammer, it would not have prevented the hammer. So I don't think they... I don't think their charmed early life harmed them. I don't think they should have been more vigilant. No, I think the, the I, system should have been kinder. Yes, and I think that's a wonderful, I think that's wonderfully expressed in the book. And there's a moment where, where Celestial talks about the, the court case and expecting, uh, you know, them to start asking for DNA evidence and things like that because she's watched TV and she's seen the police procedurals and things like that. And, and none of that happens because the system is already completely stacked against them. That's a really fascinating moment. Um, so I just, I, again, I think what you spoke about, about moral ambiguities at the beginning of our conversation as well. And I think that one of the reasons that the Roy and Celestial relationship is so absorbing is all of the various moral ambiguities that, that play into their relationship and its 
evolution over the course of the novel. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you approached uh, balancing those very different and complex viewpoints? Well, Roy and Celestial are a young couple. They've only been married 18 months. And one thing I always have to tell my students, my students of writing, is that, remember, your characters do not know they're living in a book. Your characters think they're living in a world. So this is a young couple who, you know, they're having problems that young couples have. He's a little bit of a cheater. I mean, nothing to write home about, but he's a little bit, he has a little bit of a wandering eye. Um, They have this class difference between them. They're trying to figure out if they should have a baby. All the things that everyone worries about. And then he faces this wrongful conviction. And when he is wrongfully convicted, all of the modern ideas they had about their marriage, that you know she has this exciting career that they're going to build together. Everyone admires her for being so strong-willed and independent until her husband is wrongfully conviction, convicted. And then everyone expects of her to become kind of this kind of archetype of the sacrificing stoic um, wife. And that is not who she is. And so then the question to me because becomes, are we, do we believe that feminism is only available during the good times? <laughs> is feminism a luxury that Black women cannot afford? Because when you think about novels about women in marriage and a woman, for whatever reason, is unhappy in her marriage, the woman is usually white and she leaves her marriage because she's just not happy. You know, she wants to eat, pray, love, mm. you know, whatever. <laughs> but in novels about Black women that leave marriages, the woman is almost always running for her life because there is a sense that that is the only reason you are allowed to be discontent in a marriage because you're needed too much because your husband is under siege as a black man. Yeah, and you talk, and there's a wonderful quote in the book, and you talk about it in the essay at the end of the book in the ver- in the edition that I have about an overheard conversation that you heard in a shopping mall, and um, which is just wonderful. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I think it feeds into the same ideas and themes. Well, this was when I was very stuck as to how to write a novel about wrongful conviction, because wrongful conviction, like I said, is not a character, it's not a plot. And I felt like I was trying to write about I was trying to write about problems and their people instead of people and their problems. And I was in the mall and I saw a young couple and they were in love and in trouble. And the woman said, clearly, she said, Roy, you know, you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And then he said, I don't know what you're talking about. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. And I felt they were both right. I mean, I felt like all three of us knew he would not have waited on her for seven years. We all, everyone knows that. That's not controversial, but he's right. She, as a woman, would not likely have had this problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the 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 novel it goes past just the notion of, of of justice and social justice and into those enforced gender norms and how both characters struggle against them, and you know you do make you made reference to to Roy's wandering eye, um, and you know I I just think is the notion that he has this kind of cognitive dissonance, I'm going to call it, around infidelity. You know, there is a slight sense of a standard for him and a standard for Celestial. And I I do see, as you say, how the, the events of the novel kind of exacerbate this and, and cement these positions. And do you think this is kind of representative of, of American gendered norms at the moment? I think that particularly when you face this matter of racial violence and racial injustice, that the idea of 
these very traditional patriarchal gender values become in the, in the Black community almost like a defense against the violence. This idea that the woman will be endlessly sacrificing and that me that is all he has and that is her role her role in the fight against injustice is to be chaste to be like penelope in the odyssey which was written i think 73 bc um that that is that is i think that's a real thing i think that when people have more resources and are more flexible people are very interested in interrogating the idea of gender roles but not in the, even if you look at, with all the police violence, one thing I was thinking about, this isn't in the book, but motherhood. Black women's motherhood is so degraded, particularly working class Black women. There's always a sense of, where's your husband? Or you couldn't afford that baby. You know, why did you, you know, why are you having more than one child? Why, you know, all this is so much, the motherhood is so degraded, unless when the women's children are murdered by the police, then they become venerated, their motherhood is only venerated when their child is dead. And I feel this way about, in some ways, about this marriage between Celestial and Roy, that, you know, she, her only opportunity as a Black woman to be venerated as a dutiful wife, as a, as a lady even, is in the context of her husband being incarcerated. And if she does then conform to this kind of saintly role, but she doesn't want that. That's not the kind of person she is. Yeah. And I think wonderfully, the person who probably expresses that so cl- the most clearly within the novel is is Walter, our, our ghetto Yoda character who, you know, who, who, who kind of cuts through all of the nonsense and just says, look, this is the way that she's going to be perceived by the outside world and, and says to Roy, you've got to you've got to come to terms with that. Um, and it's a wonderful clarity, a moment of clarity in the novel. Um, and I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about themes of parents and particularly if you could talk to us a little bit about the father figures in the book, because we're presented with a number of different kinds of fathers. And I just think the the interplay and the contrast between them is just so illuminating. No, there is this stereotype in the world of black men as absent or bad fathers. Um, sometimes people ask me, you know, when you were writing this, were you writing against that stereotype? And I, I think that, you know, since I grew up I talked to my dad every day. So I never, I didn't, that stereotype wasn't pressing on me. Like I didn't feel the need to create a fiction to disrupt the stereotype. I feel the way you disrupt stereotypes is just by telling the truth because stereotypes are at their heart a lie. But fathers in this story, one, all these dads in the story, they're all kind of funny because I think that dads are under the impression that they're funny. My father believes himself to be hilarious. And so that was one thing they did. Like Roy's um, cellmate is a father figure and he's a wisecracker, but he is also wise. And he loves Roy. They, all these fathers love their children and they're trying to figure out the best way forward, even when they're wrong. But they're all, all the fathers though are deeply informed by gender roles. When Roy goes to prison, Celestial's father, who didn't even really like Roy that much, becomes Roy's biggest champion because he starts to see Roy as a symbolic person and see his daughter as a symbol of something. And so his parenting has been skewed because once you stop seeing anyone as an individual, you don't make good decisions. But then there's big Roy who just loves Roy so much that he has kind of organized his whole life around 
taking care of him. And then there's Andre's father who left Andre's mother for another woman, but he tries to be a good father from a distance, but he doesn't know what he's doing. Bless his heart. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just wonderful to see all of those contrasts. But again, when you talk about the idea of symbols, it's it's so interesting because it it brings me back to this notion that I think we we are as a society, both in Europe and in the States, we're still caught up in this idea of the, the deserving and the undeserving poor. And unless you are saintly, unless you are a symbol, you are always in danger of being pushed into that undeserving poor category. Um, and I think that's such a destructive force in this novel, both in terms of the external pressures and then the internal family pressures as well. Well, there's also this other thing on the other side, like when Celestial is asked, has to testify on behalf of her of her husband, she's told that she must be not to be so well-spoken and articulate because, you know, she's a very educated young woman, but she needs to seem down to earth. When I was writing this, this was when George Zimmerman was on trial for murdering the young boy, Trayvon Martin. And Trayvon had a, a, a young lady who was his friend and she testified and she was clearly a working class black woman from Miami. And you could tell. And everyone said, oh, she didn't do a good job. She wasn't a good representative. So I feel like there's this both ways. Like, so Celestial is has pressure. Don't be so well-spoken because people don't believe you're real. But then if you're overly real, people don't believe you're credible. So she's trying to find her way. I don't know that there is a lane for her to be in where she can be warm enough yet you know, aloof enough. How do you how do you thread that needle? Yeah, yeah. I think it's something we see with women in politics all the time. You know, this notion that, you know, either you're too strident or you're weak, um, you know, and even looking at things like the um, oh, just uh, the Brett Kavanaugh case and things like that, where you're you're kind of going, well, what is the what is the correct way to behave? You know, some emotion, like, no emotion. <laughs> yeah, just enough. Like it's a lot like, well, this is the case with women and so many things. You know, I read I read something super interesting about clothing and they said that for women, there's no neutral outfit. There's no pair of khakis that if you have a skirt, the length of the skirt tells a story. If you have on a pair of shoes, there is no invisible shoe. The heel tells a story. The color tells a story. There is no neutral way for a woman to clothe herself. And I also think there's no neutral way for a woman to present. Mm-hmm. And talking a little bit more about Celestial um, and, and again about the symbolism in the novel, which is really so rich, um, Talk to me a little bit about these these dolls that Celestial makes, these poupées. They're, it's a it's a beautiful word um, and it just feels, again, symbolic of a kind of an absence in the novel. Um, these are these beautiful kind of baby doll dolls, which are quite haunting and slightly haunted feeling in the novel. Well, the dolls, I had a great time with them because I have a dear friend who is a, who is a doll maker. She's a quilt maker, a doll maker. She illustrates children's books. She does all this beautiful um, work with her hands and her dolls take her years sometimes to make. And I was interested in, in it for several reasons. For one, I think that it really is an excellent way of thinking of women's art production. Like me as a novelist, I was on a plane and I sat next to a man and told him I wrote a book. And he said, oh, have you written a romance? Yeah. I said, no, I've written a book about the collateral effects of wrongful conviction. And he said, oh, great, I'll buy it for my wife. Like he could not imagine that I had written anything that would be interesting to him. And that is kind of how it is too with a lot of times like these dolls, you make these, Celestial makes these dolls, but dolls are consumed as toys for girls. So that was one way they were interesting in the life of a woman artist. 
I was also interested in this, all the baby talk in the story. Everyone, will you have a baby? Won't you have a baby? You know, that was also part of her making these dolls, which are babies, but are not babies. Then there was also the question I had about art and commerce. What is, what is it to make them for museums? What is it to sell them? And finally, the question is what I call the ethics, ethics of portrait making. When she starts making her dolls, they look like Roy and Roy loves this. He feels so seen. He says, I'm her muse. It's so important to him that she's always on his mind. He, she is always, he is always on her mind when she's doing her art and the art is evidence of her devotion. But when he's in prison, he sees the dolls that look like him as stealing his story, stealing his image. So, and I feel that way as a novelist sometimes. I have a friend and he often says really funny things that I jot down and he gets really angry. I had to stop using them because he says, you're stealing my personality. Oh, yeah, it's so interesting. It's like the photograph and the soul idea as well. This notion of what it is, representation and what it takes from a person. Um, but yes, I love I do love that 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 change in thinking that that creeps in as the novel progresses. And then the final kind of image that I'd love to talk about is is the is the image and without giving away too much um, is the image of the hickory tree of old hickey that runs through the novel as well. Well, Atlanta is a major city, but it is a city among the trees. In Atlanta, if you want to cut down a tree that's any bigger than the size of your wrist around, you have to get a permit. We do not allow people to go cutting down trees in this city. We're very proud of it. So for there to be a, a tree in her yard felt very Atlanta, very, very, you know, true to place. And, you know, Atlanta is my hometown and natural habitat. So I try to represent it. But also... Trees are fascinating to me symbolically. All the foreign editions, almost all of them, have a tree on the cover. But what's interesting is some of the editions emphasize the branches of the trees and others emphasize the roots. And I think that is the question of this story. Are you your branches or your roots? Oh yes, that's a beautiful way to put it. And I'm 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 now going back to look at my oh mine is a branch edition. <laughs> Mine is a little I, well, I'll call it the little spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Teari. Um I'd love to ask just in terms of uh, capturing a little bit of the present moment. Um in terms of the coronavirus pandemic and you as a writer. Um, you you know, you teach at university. Am I right? You do teach. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, how has your day to day practice and work been affected? Well, I find it very hard to write fiction right now. I feel sometimes I feel like I'm playing with my imaginary friends, like there's so much going on in the world that for me to be writing about a family in crisis, which is what I tend to write about. I, it just doesn't feel, doesn't have the gravitas and heft that it did when I started writing it in January. And so I have been really had to force myself to remember that my art, it still matters, it's still important. So that has been a big change. Um, I'm teaching my classes online. My students are more dedicated than they've ever been, which has been kind of amazing. They're giving me homework. They said, oh, professor, I read, they, I read this article. Would you read it and we can talk about it? But it's good. I think the young people inspire me. I think young people are going to save us. But I am still 
the coronavirus epidemic here, particularly in the state of Georgia where I live, it we, our numbers are still going up, and I, it has really exacerbated questions of race and class. I had I wrote um, in the Guardian about an experience I had, and I have someone deliver my groceries to me. I'm afraid to go to the grocery store, and this woman came and she delivered because I I ordered the groceries and then I delivered them to my parents. My parents are in their 80s and they live about 20 minutes away. And this woman, she was delivering the groceries. She was in a good mood. She was chatty. And she kept saying, we've been working delivering groceries, you know, for six months. We drive three hours to Atlanta to get the grocery work. And I said, who is we? Are you part of a team? And she opened the back door of her car and she said, no, it's me and him. And she took out a baby. He was like six months old. And she made, she held his hand so it seemed that he was waving. And I was just struck by this idea that she takes this baby into the grocery to do my shopping. Yeah. yeah. It just it just broke my heart. Wow. Wow. I mean, I think it has been it has emphasized so many of the divisions that many of us were feeling um, to such an extent. Um, but it also has made those kind of interactions so marked and so valuable because they're so rare. Um, you know, we had a about two weeks ago, we, uh, my family had to all get tested because my toddler had a, a cough and she was fine. But, uh, you know, we were very we were very lucky in that because she was so young. A man came to our house and and did the test there. And um, but the, the, the interaction was so meaningful and we were talking about his work in the area. We realised we'd seen him. There are a lot of older people live where we live now. Um, and we had seen him obviously visiting houses and it hadn't, the penny hadn't dropped for us that this guy was around doing coronavirus testing. Um, but it exposes, I think, uh, the, the holes in all of our safety nets for ourselves in a really frightening way. Um, and just how fragile I think our social contract is everywhere, you know, that we all depend so much on each other uh, when we actually feel, I think, a lot of the time that we are acting and able to act as individuals. We're never really. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. I've learned, this has been the most sobering, sobering six months. And I was never a person that believed all was well. I mean, I wrote <laughs> An American Marriage because clearly I believe we have very serious, you know, inequities. But this last six months, I've just, I don't know. I'm finding it very hard to remain optimistic and keep my sense of, my mm. sense of power. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think, what can I do? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's unusual to be beset by a, a crisis that's both kind of existential and also very real and present. Um, and I think it's so hard for us all to all deal with it. And to go back to what you were saying earlier about the continuing to, to write during this moment, it's also hard to figure out a way to to respond to the crisis in writing, I think, because it's it's still happening. Yes, and you don't have the benefit of, you don't have the wisdom of knowing how it all turned out. Mm, and mm. I mean, I've written some nonfiction, which is not my bag, but I've been writing some nonfiction about my experiences and I feel very vulnerable. I'm a fiction writer. I mean, that's, I, I take comfort and I get boldness from, from fiction and I have to be who I am and write some nonfiction. But also, you know what else I think is important? I completely believe that writing is, is transformative. But I tell everyone, you know what's really transformative? Money. We need to give money to people who are doing the work on the ground. So like when all these young people were protesting because of Black Lives Matter, I wrote a check to the bail, the bail funds to get them 
out of jail. So, I mean, yes, I could write a poem and I'm all for verses, but it was also important that I use the money that I have made as a writer to get those kids out of jail. Those kids need to get out of jail. So I think as artists, we need to one, believe in the power of our art, but also know that our art alone is not enough. Mm-hmm. And I think it, that's a that's a really inspiring note because, you know, it is so easy to feel like we exist in a world where we can do nothing to change things. Um, and and I think that those little those little but important direct actions are the things that we can kind of cling to and say, OK, yes, I have made some sort of a difference today, um, both with the wonderful transformative uh, and empathy invoking power of art, but also with that check in the mail, which is really important <laughs> yes. too, really important. Um, so, Terry, thank you so much for all of this. Um, and just to finish off, to, to return to the notion of this as a prize that that is Um, you know, uh, conducted through libraries around the world. I've been asking everyone just to tell me a little bit about how public libraries have have shaped you both as a writer and a reader. Well, you know, a lot of people think that libraries are like museums for books. (laughs) And like many writers, I can tell you the stories of the librarians who were so nice to me when I was a little girl. You know, there's nothing a librarian loves more than a bookish child. And that is a significant part of my development. But I also want to speak a little bit about libraries, especially here in the States, and the role they play in communities. So many children who are are poor and working class, they don't have have computers at home. The computer they get to use is at the library. I was in um, Peoria, Illinois, and we had a book club. It was this really neat thing. There was a grant, and we put books in the boxes of people getting food from the food pantry. You know, people don't have enough food at home. And we put the book in the box with the food and said, if you would like to come back for a book club meeting, we're having it at such a date. And I was surprised that over 25 people showed up. That was a significant percentage. And we talked about the book and that it was sponsored by the library. I introduced a librarian. When I introduced a librarian, you would have thought I had introduced Beyonce. Everyone was (laughs) like, you work at the library? And then she said yes. And then she said that for today only, she was using her iPad to erase people's fines. Because so many people, if you're homeless or eating food from a pantry, you know, you can imagine you may have fines. When she said she was going to relieve their fines, people stood up, applaud. They forgot all about me. The whole thing was to get their library cards back because the library was their lifeline. And I think we forget how important the the public library is for the public. I mean, yay for smart, nerdy girls like me who were, you know, given a copy of the Odyssey when I was too old, too young to read it. But more importantly, librarians are the, they throw a lifeline to so many people. The library is your tax dollars at work in the very best way. Mm -hmm. I would totally agree. I've lived really close to the inner city in Dublin for the last 10 years and there are some libraries there and every time I was in the library there would be people printing out CVs so they could apply for jobs older people just reading the newspaper getting out of the weather you know they are so indispensable to our community and I think the current moment hopefully will remind us all of that and hopefully when we do emerge into some sort of a wonderful future where many of these problems will have been fixed we'll we'll cling to that and we'll remember to keep our libraries funded because I think it's a problem everywhere in every country, the notion that these wonderful things that have been set up could be taken for granted so easily. 
Yes. And people just don't know. I mean, like a lot of people, if the library doesn't serve you in that way, you don't understand that it's not just a place to get the, you know, the newest Harry Potter or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much for this, Tayari. It's been such a lovely opportunity to chat. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to join us for the online awards ceremony broadcast from the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin on the 22nd of October at 11am Irish Standard Time. You can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.